listening to The Defiant Ones, a behind-the-scenes look at the world of Defy. Hey, what's going on, Defiance? This is The Defiant Ones. Thank you so much for being a, a patron of the Patreon here on The Defiance and for uh, for supporting us in all that we do. Uh, Defy is is back, and how good does it feel to have Defy back and have a handful of shows on the calendar to finish the year off strong? Uh, it's felt great just to be in that room, to just experience all of the energy of Defy it's been really, really nice, and, and it's been cathartic in a way for, for all of us, I think. Uh, it's been a rough 18 months for all of us, but it's nice to have these events to look forward to, you know, to, to kind of put aside the craziness of this world for just a couple hours and be immersed in the world of Defy. Now, how insane was that John Moxley appearance? That was a pretty crazy experience just seeing him walk through that curtain and hearing the enormous reaction he received from all of you. Now let's keep this Defy momentum going. This calendar is filling up with a ton of great shows, and here's what we got. This coming weekend, Defy returns to Portland for Defy Dangerous. That's Saturday, October 9th, with Eddie Kingston and Brody King teaming up to take on the team of Ethan HD and Schaff. Defy makes its debut down in SoCal in L.A. on Thursday, October 14th for Defy Hellbent featuring Viva Van, Eddie Kingston, Christopher Daniels, Daniel Garcia, and many more. Now Defy returns back home to Washington Hall for a show called Defy Marauders a couple days before Halloween, October 29th. It's going to feature the Defy debuts of both Killer Kelly and Homicide. So I'm looking forward to uh, many killer shows coming up. And, and, and yes, I did use the word killer again. I'm sorry, Kelly. Looking forward to these shows coming up. And, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot announced down the pipeline. It's just good to have things back in full swing. But without any further ado, I'd like to welcome in my dude, Matt Farmer, one of the, the guys here that really, really... Uh, is is a, is in charge of all of this. He's like the wizard from the Wizard of Oz. You don't really see him, but he's got. Uh, he's always scheming and always coming up with with things that uh, you know are 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 going to be happening in Defy. He's the one that we can thank for having all of these rad shows to look forward to. He's also a wrestling historian himself and a wrestler. He's going to be talking a lot about his uh, his tales of wrestling on the road. Pacific Northwest Wrestling History, and all about Defy. So here it is. It's Matt Farmer on The Defiant Ones. It's The Defiant Ones, and uh, we're talking right now with a guy you might not recognize, actually, and I feel like sometimes that's probably the way he just he wants it to be. He's, he's not an on-screen character or in-the-ring character. In his prior life, he was a wrestler. We're talking with Matt Farmer. One of the the main men, one of the big shots at Defy. So, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing I'm doing really great. I was actually just checking my phone because uh, a Mister Miggs was just texting me. Oh. So, yeah, we're we got a dinner or no a lunch date tomorrow. Ooh, nice! You guys going yeah. to tra- Trapper Sushi? No, we're gonna go to Wicked Pie. Ooh, nice! All right. Ooh, yeah. Right on, man. Well, okay, so. Uh, if, if people are unfamiliar, obviously they don't see you in the ring wrestling. They don't see you doing interviews. They don't, they might not know that you're kind of the wizard 
of the Wizard of Oz, of Defy, if you will. What exactly would you say your role is? What's your title? And 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 what do you do for Defy, man? Um, I would I would kind of call myself on paper. I call myself a producer. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of like my title with Defy, but it it boy it it varies so much. Um, myself, Jim, and Annie were like sounding boards off of each other, so we literally talk about almost everything, every aspect of Defy with each other. There are certain aspects that like I don't really work with, like work on that Annie might specialize in sure, and vice sure. versa. Um, and same with Jim. There are certain things that I do that Jim doesn't really deal with and doesn't want to deal with. Yeah. So it's very much a team effort. We all have our specialties. We all have our strong points. There's times where we have to, um, you know, reel the other person in a little bit, you know? Um, but I, I would call myself a producer, but that the what, what that job entails is just like a producer, like a television show or a radio show. It's mm-hmm. everything. I mean, you, yeah. you know, there will be days I will be booking tra- uh, travel. There will mm-hmm. be days I will be negotiating pay. There will be days I will be helping book hotels, or there will be days I will be talking talent off of a ledge. Yeah. Metaphorically, you know, or sometimes <laughs> legitimately. But yeah, yeah you know, the, you're a little bit of everything. I've said this before to be a booker in wrestling, which is what I really am, is a booker. Um, you have to uh, understand creative, you have to understand psychology. And I'm talking about human psychology. Mm hmm. Um, you also have to be a babysitter. You also have to be a, um, a bookkeeper an accountant, a little bit yeah. of everything all rolled into one. Well, so, yeah. okay. Well, uh, you know, you, you put it very well there and, and like, it's because it is a very, you know, small team that does these things. You have to have your hand in, in all of it. So, yeah. Like today I spent half my day talking to lawyers about mm. you know contracts and things like that so it goes beyond just creative yeah uh, it's funny because this is one of the things that always like um it, it's interesting in wrestling everybody wants to be creative and work in that creative realm of wrestling yeah. and be a booker but that's probably like 15 20 percent of your actual job is writing storylines or being creative, the other parts all administration or production or whatever, you know. Yeah. So a lot more goes into it than just, hey, this guy's gonna wrestle this guy and eventually they're gonna like have this match, you know. So it's interesting. It's not all the creative glory. Sometimes you actually have no. to to run a business. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. How much um how important do you think it is to have someone within, you know, you Annie and Jim, how important do you think it is to have someone who has been in the ring and knows, you know, what it's like to be on the road or fly to these different events? Do you think that's an important uh, thing to have in that crew? I really do. I don't think it's necessary for everybody in the team to have that experience, but I think it's necessary for someone in that situation or in that group to have that experience because they do bring something unique to the table. Sure. They're also going to see things from a talent point of view and also from a storyline point of view too. Why do things make sense? Why shouldn't this guy wrestle this guy? Yep. 
maybe this guy in the ring is liked by fans, but he's kind of dangerous and the wrestlers don't like wrestling him, you know, because he's sloppy or whatever. Mm -hmm. Those are the kind of, that's the kind of experience that's very necessary that a lot of uh, people that just watch wrestling for fun, they don't necessarily pick up on. Mm. And and it's very important at times. All right, right on. Well, uh, we're going to get into a lot of, um, you know, your history with wrestling, and we're going to get into some of your collections. If you follow Matt on Twitter, uh, you'll see that he is a collector, and also he's a historian of wrestling, and specifically Pacific Northwest wrestling. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but let's just start with a, with a with a with a curveball here. Pick a scar on your body, Matt, and tell us mm-hmm. the story of how you got the scar, and show us if you can. Well, I, I've got like a really prominent scar, like right here that goes from here down to here. And I could actually okay. feel it. And that's actually from a match that I had with um, Maniac Matt Bourne, Doink the Clown. Mm-hmm. And it was a, um, it was a big Josh, big Josh. Yeah. Big yeah. Josh. Um, it was a chain match. And oh, wow. it was one of those deals where it got extremely bloody and uh, very physical and it, it was just a scar that I've always had. And I remember one of the interesting stories about this is that it bled extremely a lot, like more than most cuts do bleed. Yeah. And after the match, I was out behind the dressing room and I'm sitting there cause it, I was kind of tired and beat up. So I was like leaning over and blood was literally dripping out of my head. And there was a puddle of blood in front of me and it was a good sized puddle of blood. And <laughs> somebody walked by and they were like is that blood fake and it's literally dripping out of my head like i had to use super glue to to stop it from bleeding so i could go out drinking that night does it look fake buddy come here yeah and it was actually on you it was like it was january or february so it was really cold out and you could actually see the steam coming up from the blood oh that's okay was he a northwest guy who Matt matt Bourne? Yeah, he was born in Milwaukee, Oregon. His dad, tough oh. Tony Bourne, was um, homesteaded for Don Owen and Ransom Townsend Don Owen. And Matt had his first match in Portland. I had no idea. Right on. Really? You didn't know that? I did not know that. No. Well, yeah, I, was... I'm not the historian you are, but we will. I'll yeah. get schooled. I'll get schooled. Yeah. Uh, that was okay. an interesting guy. He liked. Awesome. He was a. He was a heavy hitter. Yeah. As you could tell by the scar. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go back to in memory lane here. If, uh, you know, obviously there must have been a time you fell in love with wrestling. Were you a, a wrestling fan growing up? And do you remember your first time where, like, you interacted with wrestling? Mine was watching uh, VHS of WWF WrestleMania 2 at my uncle's house. What was yours? Okay. Uh, the first time I recall watching wrestling, Jesus would have been, like, the late 1970s. Okay. Um, or maybe 1980, but it was, excuse me, it was, um, Buddy Rose was wrestling, I believe one of the sheep herders or one of the fat or one of the fabulous kangaroos. It was one, it was one of the kangaroos because they were using the, um, the boomerang. Okay. They would come to the ring with the boomerangs and it ended up becoming extremely bloody and you know buddy rose had like the bleach blonde hair mm-hmm. and so on television he was just like covered in blood yeah and i remember that being really striking and of course like a lot of people i watched it with my grandpa and so mm-hmm. 
we started going to the, like the live matches um, locally in Tacoma. Oh, and cool. so like they would run shows in Tacoma every month mm-hmm. um, at the Bicentennial Pavilion. And so I would go there. It was like one of their monthly spot shows. So I'd go there every month and it was awesome because there's, you know, anywhere from a thousand to 2000 fans or more, Wow, you know, in this little building. And you saw everybody that you saw on TV and even major stars like Andre the giant and flair and stuff would come in or Harley race or, you know, I saw like buddy Rose versus dynamite kid or Kurt Henning versus dynamite kid there, you know, crazy Mm -hmm. stuff like that. So it was really interesting really interesting a great time to be a fan because it was so those those shows were so great like when wwf first came here in like 1986 while the crowds were a little bigger you know were bigger obviously and things were more colorful the shows were not better like the portland shows were way better like i remember even saying that i was like geez these wwf guys are big and stuff but man those portland guys like they're fighting each other for real you know, yeah. that's how you think as a kid, you know, cause you see the blood, but I remember that I, that was something that like was a common part of our conversation at the time. Um, my, uh, my mom grew up, uh, in, uh, just by right by Eugene and she grew up mm-hmm. watching Portland wrestling. And she said that my grandma would always be like that damn Roddy Piper. He's got such a bad mouth on him. And she would just, she just hated Roddy Piper, but she always had to watch him. And my mom's yeah. favorite was Snuka. Um, yep. apparently when he wrestled in, in Portland. So these, um, these shows that you went to in Tacoma, were they Portland wrestling on tour or? Yeah. So, you know, I, I've shared this with a lot of wrestlers that wrestle for defy, you know, Portland wrestling, it was a local territory, but they ran okay. literally, literally six or seven nights a week. Mm. If there's a town or city that you live in, in the Northwest, there's a good chance that there was a regular wrestling show hit in that city at some That's point. Awesome. You know, um, if you wrestle for Don Owen, you were wrestling six days a week, minimum. Minimum. You know, there was days that they would work seven days a week. Some days, if you were, you know, if you had a light week, you might work five. But on average, it was six days a week. And uh, excuse my ignorance, but was was Don Owen a part of the NWA? He was. He okay. was a member starting in like 1951, 52, 51. Yeah. Okay. So you would yeah, so, get the title matches with like Flair and everything would come up here. And yeah, sometimes. Flair wrestled would re- Flair defended in Eugene, Flair oh, wow. defended in Salem, Portland, Seattle, Tacoma. Yeah, Cheney, Washington. You know. Yeah, I, I always joke with Tom Pritchard because he wrestled Ric Flair for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship in Bellingham. Oh wow! Know? And um, in Pendleton, Oregon, he defended the title against Tom and Pendleton. Wow! So that was just common, though. Yeah. You know. Um, wrestling like has a crazy long history in the Northwest. So, you know, I mean, it, it was just something that was in every major city, you know, Seattle used to have weekly wrestling where they would draw 1500 people easily every week for years. I mean, it was just a staple. Well, when did you, when did that stop? Um, is that around the time that WWF took off and whatnot? Yeah, it, it was like the mid eighties. It started really drying up. Yeah. Mid eighties. There was like Don Owen and Dutch Savage. They were running Seattle every other week at the Seattle Center Arena. Remember the old Mercer Arena? Mm-hmm. That was their spot, you know, and they would run a show every other Wednesday. That's a big arena. I remember seeing big concerts there. That's a pretty yeah. big place. Me too. It holds about what, 5,000 fans or so. And 
Wow. They wouldn't, they wouldn't always sell it out in the yeah. heyday. In the heyday, they would, you know, average probably two, 3000 people every two weeks. Damn dude. Okay. So there was a, and, and that was drawing just based on the te- television or just yep. the based okay. on the television. Awesome. And also oh. it was television and it was also, um, uh, it, it was also, you were just familiar with going, like going to live matches, you know? Yeah. There were old ladies that would go to the matches every time they would be there and they were consistently there. As yeah, a matter yeah. of fact, at Defy, one of our regular fans, her name's Joni, she'll, you know, she'll come to the show sometimes with like photo albums and things mm-hmm. like that. You know, she used to go to those shows and every once in a while she'll bring photos to me from like when I wrestled. Yep. But she'll also share photos of like when she was going to the matches every week, you know, so it's interesting. You know. And shout out to Joni because she is a subscriber to the Patreon and listens hey, to this podcast. So yeah. Hi, Joni. Yeah, she's provided a lot of photos over the years. So that's, awesome. that's cool. Yeah. Well, yeah. um, okay, so when did you get it in your mind that you wanted to be more than a fan, more than a, an observer, more than a historian, but you wanted to actually t- step your foot in the ring? Well, what how old were you? Um, I was probably a teenager. Well, no, I was younger than a teenager because when I was in grade school and stuff, I would do the thing where I would dress up like Buddy Rose or Ric Flair or something or one of the road warriors. Um, but then as I got, the thing was, is back then there was like wrestling schools didn't exist Mm -hmm. and there was no outlet. You couldn't go online and see like an outlet or a way to get into wrestling. And like if you talk to wrestlers or whatever at the time, they weren't really encouraging to get into wrestling. Okay. They didn't really want you in wrestling. Sure. You know, unless you were paying them to train. Why know? is that? Because so, you're taking money away from them or yes, they... you're you're potentially taking a spot. It's also a protective thing. You don't mm-hmm. want to expose the business to people. Sure. When you did decide to train someone, you usually beat the shit out of them for a while to see how they would react or if they could handle it. Mm-hmm. It was just part of weeding things out, you know. Um, you know, another one of our Defy fans, my buddy James, he had his ankle broken. Jesus. Or I'm sorry, was it was it your ankle or was it your wrist, James, that you got broken training to be a wrestler? Tolan? In the, in, yeah, James Tolan in the yeah. mid. Yeah. Ask him about it. He had his like, I, I, I got to say it was, his, I, it was, I think it was his, his wrist. Now that I think okay. about it. You know, he was training to wrestle and they broke his wrist. Um, it was just a different world back then. And yeah. so like there wasn't like really a gateway to become a professional wrestler. Um, but once I got like, once I probably, I would say in, uh, in high school, I really became serious about wanting to do it because me and my buddy, we would start going to the matches every single week and, or we would drive wherever to go to live matches. Mm-hmm. Um, we literally like learned how to read like a map and stuff just to go to these shows in, you know, small towns across the Northwest. Forget the Grateful Dead. You you guys were following the wrestling. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, there was times where I'd like have to sneak out of the house and stuff to go, you know, go yeah. watch shows somewhere. Yeah. Um, Cause a lot of the shows were on weeknights too, mm-hmm. you know, a random Wednesday night in Oakville, Washington, you know, in front of, 40 people there's a show going on so what's the most random podunk town in washington or oregon and and no offense to the people that might live in this town that he's about to name because 
but I'm just saying there are a lot of small towns and stuff. I'm assuming there what's what's the smallest, most random place uh-huh. you saw a, a wrestling show? Oakville's really small. That yeah. had like a, a school, like a school. Um, Everson, Washington was really small. Drew a great crowd though. Um, Goldendale, that's way out there. Um, I'll, that's just off the top of my head. Yeah, but yeah, for sure. Those are towns that I wrestled in that were like the the biggest building in the in the in the town was a school. Mm. You know, so e- even in in Oregon, there's tons of little towns like that too, you know, that you'd go to and wrestle in small buildings and some of them would have great crowds, you know? Well, that's the um, thing is, is they probably don't get much there. Yeah. And, and when they get something that you make an impact and they'll come yeah. back. Yeah. Yep. You wrestled at a high school gym somewhere out in the middle of nowhere and everybody from the high school comes yep. out, you know, because that's all they got going on. Those are some of the best shows too, because the fans there, they're completely like, um, they're unbiased as far as what they mm-hmm. see for entertainment. So they're just excited from the get go. Yep. But that, that was like, those are always like considered good towns for promoters to run back in the day. Nice. You know? Yeah. So high school, you're following these tour, you're following the wrestling, you're going to all these different places, sneaking out. Um, mm-hmm. What was your first step into it? Who did you train with? And, or, you know, did you, how, how did you even approach that? As you said, there's not schools and stuff. How did you yeah. get, get your step in there? Well, one of the first things that we did is we were going to show so often that the wrestlers were starting to notice us. Okay. Like you'd get like a guy like uh Moondog Ed Moretti, which is Nick Wayne's grandfather. Mm-hmm. You know, he was one of the guys that like really like helped out a, in early in my career, he was like one of the guys that would see me at all the shows and he'd see me and my friend in the front row and maybe say hello to us. And then I became friends with one of his friends who wrote like a newsletter and um, his name is Mike Rogers. And uh, he's got actually a great book on the history of Northwest wrestling coming out pretty soon. Nice. Um, but he introduced me to like Ed and Buddy Rose. And then I started going to like local independents that were mm-hmm. running in, in the area. And I met this guy named Tom, Tommy Justice, who was like a wrestler up in Canada for a while. Okay. I didn't really have a big career or anything like that. Wrestled some TVs up there and stuff. And then he decided to tr- start training us. And so he trained us. I was still in high school at the time. Um, and the trainings were inconsistent. We weren't always training inside of a ring. In sure, fact, sure. we were once in a while, we'd find like a boxing ring to train in. Okay. But for the most part, we were training in the mat room at Fort Lewis. Mm. And he lived in Seattle and he didn't have a car. So me and my buddy, we would drive from Puyallup area to Seattle, pick him up and drive to Fort Lewis. And this is back when you could get onto the base without. Um, oh, yeah. ID we, and whatnot. Yeah, you could just get in if you had your own ID, you know. So we'd go to Fort Lewis, get in the mat room, train, and then take them back to um, Seattle and then drive home. You know, and we'd usually stay at his house because he had this huge collection of wrestling tapes and we'd just watch nice. the tapes. And yeah. uh, But then we'd always get in trouble for being late for school the next day, you know. So, um, But we did that and um, he trained us as well as get you got, well, he trained us enough to like have a match kind of sure. You know? So the difference in the era back then is when you were trained, you weren't trained completely. Like they, you didn't train, you weren't trained how to do everything. Yeah. 
you were just trained very basics back then. You'd got your basics down, but like I wasn't even shown how to like run the ropes or anything like that. Okay. You know, that was something you had to pick up down the road. Um, and then we just started, we, we started refereeing some local gigs, Okay. you know, and then after that, just fi- finally got a match somewhere. So, yeah. And when you say got a match somewhere, I'm assuming, you know, what was your first match and was it the shits? Yeah. Oh, of course it was the shits. Um, <laughs> I was, re- I was brought in as like a local, like amateur wrestler. Sure. Okay. Um, and I was in high school. So I was brought in as a local amateur wrestler and I wrestled this guy whose name was Blake cruel, but at the time he had a different name. Okay. Um, but he was a massive dude. Like any, anybody that knows Blake cruel or this guy, big red wrecking crew was his name at the time. He was massive. He was like six, 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 seven, 320 pounds, just jacked. Like he looked like Sid vicious, you know, oh, no. but, but he was bald. Yeah. And um, he was the absolute shits. Like, great guy yeah but like didn't know anything didn't know how to wrestle or anything and he just beat the fuck out of me and um God yeah that was man. it it's funny because like i was living with uh, a, a girlfriend at the time and mm-hmm. for some reason she couldn't come to the show like my first match but i drove home and i was living up in bellingham at the time and she woke me up the next morning in kind of like in hysterics because i was sleeping and she looked over and she woke me up and was like shaking me, asking me if I was okay. I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm okay. She's like, dude, you've got like a boot print on your back. And I just had his, like, he had like a size 15 boot. And that thing was just like black and blue boot print on my back. It was nuts. Yeah. It was crazy, but it, it was a lot of fun. You know, it, it was one of those things back then where we didn't like, plan the match out yeah i, I might have said hello to him or maybe one other thing and i remember playboy buddy rose was his manager mm-hmm. and so buddy rose was like telling him what to do the whole time yeah you know and that that was it so yeah. uh you mentioned uh a few minutes ago that like the the local wrestling scene started to kind of die out a little bit in the like late 80s when wwf started to get big and then you know, the, the national, um, wrestling, uh, what was the Pacific Northwest wrestling scene? Like when you started getting your, your start as a wrestler? Oh, it was an indie. There was still a lot of like weekly wrestling going on. There was a lot of wrestling on television, but they were on like smaller sports channels sure. or things like that. And so Sandy Barr, um, father of love machine art bar, he mm-hmm. took over Don Owens promotion when Don retired. Okay. In in 1992. And so Sandy took that over. He was still running a semi-regular, sometimes full-time promotion where they were doing four to five shows a week, you know? And then there was other independent promoters throughout Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and British Columbia. And so if you were a pro wrestler at that time and you were able to like get in with the right people, you could probably wrestle two, three times, maybe four times a weekend. Nice. You know, and so it was pretty busy. I would say there was probably a handful more matches a month per year. I mean, per per month at the time than there are now. Mm -hmm. Um, But they were like in random places, you know, and random promoters. So, yeah, you were able to get quite a bit of work at the time. 
Yeah. So, you know, you, you have your first match and you, you describe it as like not being great. Obviously, you know, yeah. we use the word the shits. But uh, when did you first start feeling comfortable like that you that you got this Ooh. thing down at least or you felt a little bit more confident? I would say probably. Four or five years in, maybe, oh, okay. you know, that, that and that's for us. That's having like 100, 100 plus matches a year or more. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was probably a good four or five years. Yeah, because the thing was, is that it was a little different back then is that you weren't like I said, you weren't really fully trained. Yeah. Um, And so a lot of the stuff that you learned was through osmosis, you know, kind of like just hearing things and listening to things and seeing things. And because wrestlers didn't plan matches at that mm-hmm. time, yeah, it, you were lucky. Like I was lucky enough to like get with some good guys like Ed Moretti or Buddy Rose that were respectful to me, mm-hmm. but there were also guys that were not so respectful. And so when you would get in the locker room, they were courteous, but when it came time to like wrestle them, it's like, Hey, what you want to do tonight? The guy's like, eh, I'll call it in the ring. And that's what you got. Yeah. You knew you weren't going to win, but you had no idea what you were going to do. So everything was on the fly. And so sometimes that, you know, you learned a lot, you learned a lot that way, but you also um, could screw up easily too. Yeah. And so like, I mean, I, I actually refereed, I got to referee a handful of matches and stuff before I ever wrestled, which was kind of nice. Cause yeah. I got to be in the ring with some really good people. Um, but besides that, you know, you'd get the cold shoulder from the majority of people in the locker room when you were young. And when I broke in, me and my friend broke in at the same time. And we were like the only rookies in this area for probably five years, four years. Wow. I think the next guy I remember seeing was Tony Kazina. Okay. You know, and he, he's older than me, but he broke in like probably three or four years old after I did. So. That was like the other, I remember seeing him and I'm like, oh, okay, another rookie, you know. He trained for a while with with uh, D- Davey Richards and whatnot, right? Yeah, he was Davey's yeah. trainer, one That's of Davey's right. trainers, and he one of Kyle O'Reilly's trainers, yep. and Tony's very good, and right now he's one. He's uh, the head coach of Fale Dojo, which is a oh, New wow. Japan dojo in New Zealand. That's awesome. I didn't know that, man. Yeah. Uh, right on. Well, okay, so... Um... We mentioned your match, your bloody match with Matt Bourne um, mm-hmm. as something that stands out. But what are, what were some of your other favorite opponents and some of your other favorite moments of like, you know, those early years or your career wrestling in the Northwest? Um, some of my favorite opponents, it's really weird because um, there are a lot of different reasons why I had favorite opponents. Guys that, that I watched growing up um, that I ended up getting a chance to wrestle, guys like Buddy Rose or... Ed Moretti or Matt Bourne or Jimmy Snuka or um, Mean Mike Miller or the Grappler, yeah, you know, Top Gun. Those guys I got to wrestle, those were always special to me. Or like Colonel De Beers, I got to wrestle quite a few times. Cool. Those guys were always cool to me because it was like you get a get that connection to your past. You know, yeah. Like yeah. Buddy, like Buddy Rose, growing up to me, he was my first favorite wrestler, number one, and he was awesome. You know, like technically he was great. You know, you've got guys like Shawn Michaels and Mr. Perfect and Triple H. When you ask those guys about Buddy Rose, they like stop in reverence. 
they just think the guy's awesome because he yeah, was yeah. he was great like as far as a wrestler and so i got to learn a lot from him and i got to wrestle him like like within the first year of my my career you know and so that was always really cool that one stood out to me early on because it's awesome. kind of like it was never like a goal of mine um but it was kind of cool to do that oh yeah you know it's weird because when I started wrestling, I, I never had a goal of going to WWF because I was never a big fan of WWF. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not the wrestling that like made me fall in love with wrestling. Yeah. It was always like the grittier stuff, like NW, like Jim Crockett promotions or yeah. Portland wrestling or world-class or something like that. Those are the things I always liked better, you know? And um, so growing up and starting wrestling, my goal wasn't just to like, wasn't to wrestle for WWF. It was just to have matches and wrestle, you know, and wrestle some of the guys that I grew up with watching. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that it wasn't one of your goals, but along the line, you did get to appear in WWF, WCW, mm-hmm. working as quote unquote enhancement talent on, um, you know, several of those shows. When yeah. was the first time that you worked for WWF or WCW? And uh, do you have any uh, like cool memories of, of, you know, some of those matches or some of those memories? Yeah, it was always fun wrestling for like say WWF for instance because when you got there you always felt like you were like a professional, you know, like sure. you were like at a higher level. Yeah. Um the first time I ever wrestled for them was in 1996. Um so I was a few years into wrestling by then but not very experienced and I wrestled the Smoking Guns who were like the WWF tag champions at the time. Yeah. And you it was like You still see Billy Gunn Wednesday nights. I know, huh? <laughs> And it was like, it was like a two minute, maybe three minute match. I got zero offense in. I took all of their finishing moves. I took the finishing move and it was like the slam of the week or something like that. The snicker slam of the week. Yeah. Yeah. Something something like that. that. Yeah. 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 And um, I mean, it was a lot of fun, you know, and what was interesting about that at the time is that I, I worked for them that, that time three days in a row. Cool. Even though I only got to wrestle one night, but they still paid you for everything. So like getting home, I remember thinking, oh, wow, this is actually good money. You know, I was like, geez, if I keep this up, I could actually probably do this for a living, which is, you know, kind of funny. But um, it was just a cool experience because you got to see stars and some of the stars were great to you. Some of them were like dismissive. Mm -hmm. But um, to me at the time, it was just another like show yeah honestly like that week i remember that week that i did that did work for wwe um i wrestled six days that week and so like to me it was just like no so like i'm trying to think yeah well it was like six days in a row and then the next weekend i worked like four week four days that weekend so it was like a really busy couple weeks you know and i just remember like okay this is like what you do Yep. You know, you just go from one show to the another next. And that's how like you did things back then. So you didn't really think of it as something special at the time. You just thought of it as another booking. It was just uh, something for your resume. It was a higher paying show and, mm-hmm. and then just go to the next. Right. Yeah, definitely. And at the time I had already done TV, like local TVs for yeah. some promotions and stuff. And I had like appeared for some, even though I, didn't have the experience to be in there. I'd wrestled a lot of like local 
stars or guys that were international stars. I had worked for bookers like Billy Jack Haynes or Matt Bourne or Dutch Savage and things like that. So like I had already had like that taste of working with veterans or experienced people. So that was always cool. Um, So I specifically remember, I I don't remember who the, the guest was on the episode of Colt Cabana's Art of Wrestling podcast, but I specifically remember, and this is before I really went to any indie wrestling in the Northwest. Someone described the Northwest wrestling scene in the 90s and 2000s, kind of a dead zone, no Mm -hmm. man's land for wrestling. Would you agree with that? And when did it become that? If Um, if you agree with it? Oh, yeah, I do agree with it. But I, I, in some ways, that was by design. Um, because when Don Owen ran the Northwest Territory, he was very much an isolationist in that he wanted his promotion to be ran. He wanted to handle all his own publicity. He didn't want outside interference from anybody else. The only publicity he wanted were the little ads he put in the newspaper. Okay. You know? He wanted, because, to, he wanted to be in control. Yeah. And it was his weekly business. Yep. Right? So... Every every Saturday he was in Portland. Every Thursday he was in Salem. Every Friday he was in Eugene. Mm-hmm. You know, that was his routine. That was his schedule. He didn't want anybody interfering. He didn't want a newspaper writer to come watch his show and knock wrestling. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't want a television show to come in and knock his product because they'd done that at times. Um. So he just wanted to to stay out of the limelight, and he really didn't like other promoters, even though he was part of the NWA. He didn't like a lot of the members or a lot of the presidents or um, people involved with it. So he just wanted to do things by himself. So he did isolate himself from the rest of the country. Um, And that's a lot of a lot of times how old school promoters did run things. Mm -hmm. And when Sandy Bart took over, he was a lot like that. And so they never seeked outside attention or outside like publicity and so the wrestling also in the northwest at the time was very much from a previous generation so matches that were taking place in the 90s here were very much a shout back or call back to like wrestling in the 80s maybe even the 70s because some of the promoters at the time especially like a guy like a sandy bar he was older and his idea of wrestling was still what he did in the 60s and 70s yeah. And so he wanted that. That's what kind of a product he pushed. And so that's what was how the territory was kind of formed. Very much like an old style, old school territory. And all the promoters that came along just kind of followed along, right? Sure. So everything was like a generation behind. And it remained that way for a long time. When did you see it shift? Or was it until when Defy? It was Defy. I mean, it really was. Um, Defy really changed a lot of things. And before then, I would go out, I'd go so far as to say that most of the promoters that ran prior to Defy, while some of them were good promoters and some of them ran a good promotion, they were very much still trying to validate themselves by presenting a new version of Portland wrestling. Okay. Because Portland wrestling was such a staple in the area, we were still having new versions of Portland wrestling uh, six, seven years ago, you know, yeah. it seemed like every promoter that came around wanted to like uh, harken back to the old school. Yeah. Right. And I, I, 
I lived through that so much. I got tired of it, you know? And so Mm -hmm. it was one of the reasons why defy was so attractive to me. Okay. Well, all right. Well, let's uh, get into that in just a moment, but I'm, I'm curious about, because, you know, there are, you know, promotions and and I've gone to indie wrestling shows where you see the person who's in charge of it um, is also a wrestler, you know, and, and maybe they win the championship. Who, who, how did they do that? Right. Uh, but uh, when did you personally retire from wrestling? I didn't. Oh, okay. I, ne- I never I never said that I retired and I will never say that I retire. OK, um, it's to me, it's goofy when people retire okay. from wrestling. It's like either you leave or you stay in it. You know, I don't know. I don't know. It's weird. I, I could see why guys maybe in their 60s or 70s say I retire or whatever, but I, okay. I don't know. If I want to wrestle tomorrow, I'll do it. I, I won't be for Defy, but I would do it, you know? Yeah. Maybe I would show up somewhere under a mask or something. Well, when was your last match? Um, Geez. You know, honestly, I think my last match was against Mike Santiago. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It, it was so horrible. That I just, <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, I think that was my last match. And I think it was like maybe 2014 or something. Okay. I, I, I don't, my dates are wrong. Like on current events, like history, yeah, I, I, I could hit the shit right, but like my my wrestling history, I'm horrible about. You know, I don't really think about yeah, it that yeah, much, yeah. or it's it blends together. And like I think it was Mike was my last match, but it could have been somebody else. So um, I, I'm not really sure. Well, yeah. We'll we'll see if Mike remembers. But uh, so he, when uh... he would he would remember, it was probably horrible. You know, <laughs> like I was in probably such bad physical pain I could barely walk at the time. Damn, because I know some of those last few matches I had were, you know, like I, I was talking to Randy Meyer about it recently. I mm-hmm. went on a tour, like my last wrestling tour was like a three day tour, where I was with Randy Meyer and Mike Santiago, mm-hmm. and I got hurt really bad in that. You oh, know, man. like. Like I got hurt, like the first move I took of the first night I got hurt. Oh no. So like, I mean, have fun on tour. Yeah. I mean, I finished the whole tour, but there were times like I was like crawling to like from one room to another because I was in such pain. Yeah. You know? So like, it was weird. I just was like, shit, I thought I broke something bad. You know, I thought, I thought I tore a pec muscle, but it was actually my ruptured disc. Damn. So yeah, that's how it goes okay so did you um prior to you know everything with defy did you ever attempt to be a promoter where were you did you ever have the idea to be a promoter and and um you know how far back do you remember like having that goal and um uh, tell me about some of your experiences yeah i mean i i I had promoted some some shows dating back to the 90s Um, okay yeah me and my buddy had bought got a ring from the guy that i had my first match with actually okay yeah. Um, we bought a ring and we had a wrestling school in Puyallup, Washington during okay. the late nineties. And we ran some shows there. Um, we'd have guys like Ed Moretti, this guy, Bart Sawyer and some locals. Um, and we ran quite a few shows and we would do like fairs also, or like things like that. So there was always an interest in it, of course, but there was also like regulatory commissions and things like that that made it a little a little rough you know to do at the time so you had to be careful about it um and then i was booking some shows i was working for other organizations i took a little 
job with WWE where I was working for them. Um, it's weird because even while I was wrestling and even while I was not wrestling, I was still involved in wrestling in some capacity or the other. A lot of people don't know this, but like I was working for WWE for a while. And one of my jobs was working with Howard Finkel. Oh, wow. And I was working on the WWE network when it first started, when it was actually the, remember the old WWE 24 seven channel? Yes, of course I do. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah. doing a lot of work with them. And um, I was a, I did some booking agent like roles for WWE where like I'd book like local talent to shows and things like cool. that as well. Um, so there was always like, even when I wasn't wrestling, my hand was always involved in something cool where I was writing newspaper newsletters or you also did some podcasts like yeah uh, yeah you you hosted a podcast with dutch mantel yep, did as, a, yeah yeah a couple years ago that was a short-lived one but i also had a podcast on mlw where we talked about the history of wrestling i remember that as well me and um jeremy tate yep uh we did a podcast and we did like 100 episodes of that one uh, indie um, wrestling right mm-hmm. yep. about indie wrestling i've always done stuff for um i was writing for some lucha libre magazines for a while awesome uh, dude lots of st- i don't it, dude it's crazy actually the amount of stuff that i've done yeah in terms of historical stuff too there's probably a dozen or more books out there that credit me as helping them part write part of this stuff you know yeah, um yeah. there's a book on bruiser brody that i helped write wow you know um i worked with his his widow and larry matisic to write that book brody yeah and um, so there's there's a lot of work out there that I've done that I don't always um, credit myself for doing, sure. but I, I did it, you know. So from your perspective, uh, why don't you just walk us through, give us the idea of like what, how did Defy form? Well, Defy was Jim's brainchild, right? And so like he was the one that was really behind it. He had the initial ideas and stuff. And then one day we met. And someone had recommended me to Jim to meet. And so we like went and had coffee and like, we kind of discussed our ideas and it was like, it was really weird. It was um, really, really weird actually in that, how our ideas were like, like right, like the same. What's really interesting is there was a promoter that wanted to start running shows in Oregon about six months before that. And they wanted to hire me as a booker. And so like, I went down and met with them. And pretty much everything that defined it up being is what I laid out to him, what I thought a promotion should do to change, to, to stand out in modern wrestling period, you know, and they wanted it's funny because one of our last meetings with this promoter, who's, he's still a friend of mine, but so I'm not going to call him out, but we had a meeting and he's like, Oh yeah, that sounds great, brother. We, and then we could bring back all the old guys, you know, because I had worked for him in the past and we'd yeah. wrestled each other in the past. And it was like, yeah, we could bring back all the old guys and we could do this and that like we used to do. And I was like, well, no, that's exactly the opposite of what we need to do. Yeah. You know, because what we did back then, what when it was great back then, it's no longer great. Yeah. You know, so we had to do something different. And that's what really um, attracted me to Defy. And Jim, it, you know, Jim was a big selling point of that, actually, to be honest, because they're in our positions, you would, especially in a position like myself, where I was hired a lot to book shows, 
um, you would see a lot of those promoters, those fly by night promoters that just want to, they have this grandiose vision of becoming the next Vince McMahon. Mm -hmm. Right. And I can't tell you how many times I've talked to a wrestling promoter or this, somebody that came into money or something like that, that wanted to run a show. And their goal was to like be the next WWE. And I'm just like, that's not, that's not realistic. Right. Yeah. And you shouldn't even be shooting for that anyways, because fan, the, the fans that you want to attract aren't the fans that are like WWE hardcore fans. Cause they like WWE, right? Yeah. You want to get those fans that aren't that are wrestling fans, but they want to see something different. Absolutely. So it's like, yeah. And, and that, that's really what attracted me to defy. So, We've talked a little bit about, you know, you mentioned that there is always some promoters that, you know, would would pop up and, you know, promotions would get going, but it wouldn't necessarily take off like Defy has, obviously. Um, in your opinion, and we've kind of, you know, tiptoed around this, but uh, why don't you give me your opinion on why Defy has become such a strong and vibrant wrestling company while others maybe, you know, didn't? Well, I, you know, I don't want to speak bad i don't want to say anything about other companies and what they're not doing right because i want somebody to pay me for that knowledge yeah you know but um we don't need to be negative on the others but we can be positive on what we know and a lot of the things that make defy special are the things that we tapped into right away you know we were really one of the first promotions that really tapped into that fan base and really that tapped into that community and that, I, I think that's the thing that Defy has done the best it, it, is building a community. Yeah. You know, the defiance, it's not just words, you know, there's a lot of people that, that come to our shows every month that I became really good friends with and vice versa and people that I really like and enjoy and have time for, you know, and um, that's important. Um, and uh, that's really what makes Defy stand out as well as it does, you know, um, I, besides that, you know, there, there's a formula to it. There's a magic formula to it, but you know, we're magicians and we don't want to divulge all of our secrets. So can't, can't be behind the wizard of wizard of Oz's uh, chambers, you know, quite yet. So, but, uh, so I have to ask this question because I ask everyone and it's worded a bit cheesily, but let you go along with me. So I ask everyone this question. Um, obviously, you know, you kind of alluded to the fact that it is a community and, and there's a name to that community, the defiance. Mm-hmm. What does the defiance mean to you, Matt? Um, well, it community, it really is. It's a wrestling community and it's like a community of everybody where everybody feels should feel safe and should be, they should feel included and part of it. There's, you know, from the get go, we did not want to make anybody feel uncomfortable. We want everybody to feel comfortable. That was one of our missions. And it still is to this day. Um, I may not like everybody that comes in. They might not like me, but I want them to be, to have, to have fun and be safe and, you know, make sure that there's somebody next to them. That's not making them feel uncomfortable and that they're comfortable and they, they feel comfortable bringing their girlfriends or boyfriends or, you know, whatever husbands, wives, daughters, children to the shows you know i want everybody to feel safe and comfortable and just have a good time because at the end of the day wrestling is just about having a good time and it isn't it it is a form as old school as i am at times it is entertainment and i that's the whole point is to entertain people you know so to me that's what the defiance is it's just a community awesome 
Well, yeah. um, you know, it's been what is it, four years now, three and a half years? How long has it been with the well, now? Yeah, well, well, it, it's weird because do you count COVID or yeah, what? I, you know, it's yeah, it's who knows. Randy Myers, longest reigning Defy champion. Yeah, it, it's kind of <laughs> like you put a pause on stuff, right? So. Totally. Yeah, it's hard to say how long it is, but it's been a ride so far. I know our Absolutely. first show was in January of 2017. So, okay, well, just yeah. off the top of your head, what have been a couple of your your favorite moments with Defy? Maybe a match that comes to mind, or <clears throat> someone that you booked, or just something an experience. I mean, it's hard to top that Moxley coming yeah. out. That was that, that was, was awesome. Unreal. That was awesome. Um, some of my favorite moments have been some of our bigger title changes yeah um whether that was shane winning the title um you know from from austin aries the second time that was pretty awesome the swerve where people thought shane won the impact title that was pretty massive yeah i mean i remember the the crowd that was awesome um when Artie beat shane for the title that was awesome. When Shaft beat Artie for the title, that was awesome. When Randy beat Shaft for the title, that was awesome. Brody's was, goodbye. Brody's goodbye. Masks. That was amazing. Um, Brody, Brody's debut was big to me. Brody's debut in his first few months were big to me because that was like a project, right? Like something that we saw. Like Shaft is another a guy that we saw like a project with that we saw. Okay, there's something here. Let's see what we could do with it. Randy was another one of those guys. You know, Randy was like, I told you about that tour I was on with Mike and Randy. That was 10 years ago. And I saw something in Randy on that tour that I was like, I cannot believe promotions in the Northwest are like not pushing, like, like focusing on this guy. Why isn't this guy like the top dude in like the Northwest? And I, that was 10 years ago. And I was like, I kept like trying to like, get promoters even on the sidelines to like book this guy, you know, and that to me, it was just, I was just like, why aren't they using this guy? Um, Back when I interviewed him, the first episode of the defiant ones, he mentioned how prior to defy, he was considering just being done with wrestling. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that he was one of the most charismatic guys on events on shows. And, you know, he, they nobody was doing anything with them. Yeah, um, yeah. Jeff Cobb was another guy that I was really happy to see, like in Defy, mm-hmm. you know, because I go I go back with with Jeff years years ago when I used to wrestle out in Hawaii often. Wow. Um, you know, he was a guy that I had brought into Washington and the Northwest before Defy. I was helping him yeah. get bookings, you know, in the area, so it was great working with him. Um, Man, there's been so many moments with Defy. That's what's crazy. Yeah. You know, like working with Jushin Liger or, Whew. you know, just things like that. Ultimo like Ultimo Dragon, yeah. Ultimo Dragon. There's been so many. And, and a lot of them aren't even like international stars. A lot of them are local stars, you know. Guys like Artemis, man. It was like that match he had with Ray Phoenix, you know, like that just really like turned the crowd. Like he was over. And then like yeah. that match with Ray Phoenix, just like... Put them on a different level. That was great. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, the, the, I, man, there's so many moments. I'd have to like go down like the list of results for and sure, see, for like sure. you know. But yeah, those are some moments that just stick out of my head right now. 
Absolutely. if you were to ask me tomorrow, I'd be like, oh yeah, this moment, this moment, and this moment were great, you know? So for anyone watching, I didn't go over these questions. There was no show prep. This is all just off the cuff. So these are, you know, uh, just, you know, kind of things that, that come up to mind. So, um, yeah. so aside from defy and aside from, you know, being the boss man there at defy, or at least one of them, you are, uh, as we've kind of mentioned here and, and, and tiptoed around you're you're a wrestling historian. Um, yeah. And you're also a collector. Um, mm-hmm. You have a quite a memorabilia collection. Um, what got you going with like that deep into the history and memorabilia? Did you are you just an obsessive type like I am? Um, partially, <laughs> partially I am. Like I'm a uh, well, I used to be obsessive with wrestling stuff. Yeah. Now I'm not because I've got so much stuff. I like I've got like a room, like literally a room and a storage unit full of wrestling stuff. Yeah. And so, like, I've really cut back on my collecting. Like, people will send me stuff or uh, offer me things, and I'm like, ah, no, it's okay. I don't, I don't need this year's run of figures. You know, sure, like, sure. I used to collect figures, like, during, like, I stopped, like, like the second generation or third generation of Jack's run. You know, because okay. it was just too much at that time. Like, I'd already. So you're had, no Zack like, Ryder. No, you're not Zack Ryder. No, no. I mean, <laughs> there was there was a time I was. But it was like I was into collecting stuff that was rare. Like I was yeah. getting like Lucha Libre and Japanese figures back in oh, the nineties, cool. you know. Um, what were those those poppy toys? Or the Andre the Giant poppy toy? Yeah, I got some of those. I got like one of Hogan's first figures, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I've got a ton of that stuff. I've got a lot of Mexican stuff from Mexico and other countries. Um, but a lot of my historical stuff is so. Like as a historian, my my grasp on hit wrestling history is pretty darn. I don't want to toot my own horn, but there's not many people that. And you could ask other historians this, and they'll say the same thing. There's not many people that have as wide as knowledge of wrestling history as I do. There's probably only a few dozen of us, maybe three dozen of us in the world that have that wide range of knowledge. I'm talking about from the 1700s to current stuff and on a worldwide basis, you know, um, a lot of times guys like Dave Meltzer who writes amazing obituaries, no matter what you think of the guy, you know, his historical pieces are awesome. He, I get emails from him all the time asking me references questions, you know, and it's just something that I've always been interested in. Like I said, I mentioned earlier a guy, Mike Rogers, who's writing a book. Well, when I was like a teenager, um, he was like one of the, like the leading results researchers. And so I became really good friends with him. And then I just started kind of like following what he was doing. And then there was a local guy named J. Michael Kenyon, who was considered like one of the granddaddies of like wrestling research, you know, all the major historians looked up to this dude and he was a local sports writer for the Seattle post and Seattle PI and a lot of other national newspapers and i became good friends with him and he just kind of started sharing some of his knowledge with me and then over time i just started talking to all these old historians and old wrestlers i'd go out and seek to talk to old wrestlers um guys that aren't alive now and guys that were wrestling in the 30s you know i would just wow. it would just interest me so i'd go talk to them yeah and it just grew from there you know it grew to where i was like studying wrestling history in you know in estonia you know stuff like that just rare stuff you know 
um, I, I, I learned how to read Spanish so I could study Lucha Libre history, yeah. stuff like that, you know? So it just, it's so wide open. It's crazy. I thought I had a pretty nice collection of wrestling books, but I'm assuming yours is massive. I do. I've got a lot of wrestling books. Um, yeah, I've got a lot. I've even got some wrestling manuscripts that never made it to books. Wow. What's, yeah. What's yeah. one wrestling book that you, you know, would suggest anyone read? Ooh. Um, my go-to answer used to always be Luthez's Hooker, which is the title of the book was Hooker. Yeah. Um, I would still recommend that book. However, it's not always historically accurate. It's accurate in Luthez's eyes. Sure. But there was some inaccuracies. That's a great one. Um, yeah. His would be like, probably the top one I would recommend for somebody to like really kind of get the grasp of what wrestling was. Okay. So yeah, he, he would be number one. Number two would probably be um, maybe the recent buddy rogers book that tim hornbaker put out that was a great one um any any of the books by steve yo would be great but to be honest most of the people 99 percent of the wrestling fans wouldn't understand it because they wouldn't quite uh, they wouldn't know all the characters in, involved in it you know so but yeah those are great books all right, right on. Well, I'll have to seek that out. Uh, obviously, Hooker. Uh, I, I was, yeah, Hooker. I, I had a feeling you were gonna say the the Gary Hart book. Gary's, I've heard, th- I've heard that's a great book. It's a, it's a good book for it. It's a Gary Hart book. You know, there's, it's, it's a, it's good. It's accurate in Gary's world. It's not a hundred percent accurate. Um, it, you learn a lot about his booking philosophies and um wrestling in texas and a few other territories but for a wide scope of wrestling knowledge and history i didn't really know learn anything new in it i would say you know um yeah i I mean gary's career while a long career was a short period of time in wrestling history right so you get a guy like lou fez who started his career in 1935 and it ended in like 1990 that's or later you know that's that's crazy and he he went from the era of guys that wrestled Frank Gotch to guys that like wrestled you know Hulk Hogan. Yeah, you know, so there's a huge you know there's a huge level there of difference, you know. So th- th- that's a big difference. I'll check that book out. All right. Yeah. So uh, as far as your collection goes, what are some of your prized possessions? Um, one of mine is a manuscript of that said book luthez's hooker okay. signed by signed by luthez um that was one of my prized possessions that i've always thought if there's a fire grab that thing yeah um i've got some really cool calendars and things like that like booking calendars oh wow from uh just a few years ago one of my old mentors dean silverstone who used to own the golden oldies record stores in Seattle. Yeah. Um, he was a promoter in Seattle wow. and a longtime promoter in Seattle. And he helped out with local promotions and stuff like that. And he was also a collector of stuff. He gave me many years ago when he was still alive, gave me some calendars, booking calendars. So like what old promoters used to do or old bookers used to do is they'd get like a, a calendar and they'd write the dates in all the locations and stuff for, of every wrestler 
that was in the territory at the time. And so every night you'd see, okay, they're in Bellingham, one cruise in Bellingham tonight, one cruise in Yakima. Yeah. And these are the f- six wrestlers that are in each city. And this is the gate and this is the payout for the wrestlers and so on and so on. And so like, he gave me some of these books from the fifties. Really cool. Those are really cool. Um, Dean gave me a lot of other things that were like really personal, like some of his business records from that time period. Um, and then when he passed away a, few, a year and a half ago, he gave, he actually um, left me his estate, his wrestling estate collection. And so I got a bunch of his personal items, which is really cool. Wow. Um, Buddy Rose left me some stuff too. Buddy Rose gave me a book, um, a bunch of stuff when he, Buddy passed away we were actually in the process or, of writing his autobiography. Wow. And so I was working with him on that. And so I've got like a, like a, I don't know, maybe like a 65, 70% finished book about wow. Buddy's life in a manuscript form that I have that I haven't sent, you know, we haven't published. Uh, Larry Matisic, who used to be the promoter in St. Louis, huge, mm-hmm. you know, everybody knows who he is. Wrestling um, in the chase, right? Yeah, Wrestling of the Chase. Um, He was working on a book when he passed away, and it was about the relationship between Sam Muchnick and Vince McMahon Sr. And it was called Sam and Vince. And so, like, there's this manuscript that he was working on that I was helping him out with. And he actually gave me a copy of the manuscript, so I'm probably one of, like, only a half a dozen people that own it in the world. Um, stuff like that, you know, just random stuff like that's really important. That's really um, cool. And these aren't it, things you can buy. These are one yeah. of a kind things. Yeah, very much one of a kind, you know, and it, those things are really interesting to me, you know, and those are the things that I, like, there's an old wrestler named uh, Vic Holbrook, who was writing a book in the 50s. And his son gave me a manuscript of that book that was never published. Yeah. And this is a guy that wrestled in the fifties before books were like wrestling books were like really a thing. Yeah. That's always cool. Stuff like that. Wow. Yeah. Man. That's cool. And those are things that you get from experience, from learned experience. Yeah. Those are, those are things you're gifted because you're close with someone or they're not things you buy at auction or the things you, at least you mentioned, you know, that, yeah. that's really special. Yeah, very much, very much. And so, yeah, it's, it's stuff like that, that I really appreciate the most. Yeah. Awesome. All right, Matt. Well, well, uh, you know, I'm not going to take up your whole night. We've gone pretty long here, but I do have one question for you. If you were forced mm-hmm. and you, you didn't say retire, if you were forced to wrestle, you have to wrestle one defy wrestler. Mm. Who would it be and why? Um, it would be Shaft. All right. And It'd why be is that? Shaft. Yeah. It, um, because Shaft right now is hitting on all cylinders. He's at the top of his game. I think he's like ready for that next step, you know? Yeah. And um, he's hard hitting. And when I wrestled, I like to be a hard hitter. Yep. And I didn't mind the hard hitting back. I'm, you know, I mean, he would win. Prob- maybe, maybe Shaft, <laughs> maybe. Um, but um, I think... <clears throat> um, yeah, yeah, it's just because of where he's at right now. I mm-hmm. think he's he's at the top of his game. I think we're going to see a shaft explosion pretty soon. Um, you already see him going out there and really making a name with some of the other bigger inter- independent promotions right now. You know, I mean, anybody that saw him wrestle Moxley, yep. 
he he stood toe to toe with like one of the best in the world. Yep. You know, I mean, le- legitimately like one of the best in the world. And he did not look out of place at all. He brought it, you know, and so that would be somebody I'd like to step in the ring with. Um, you know, it'd be, it'd be a great victory. Yes. Yes. I like it. <laughs> right on, man. Well, again, uh, Matt Farmer, um, you know, one of the, the, the people behind defy and, and if people want to follow along with you, cause you post out some, some really cool historical stuff, how can they find you on social media? Um, follow me on Twitter, uh, at Matt Farmer 93. Um, dude, if you're, if you're a Patreon member, I think you're probably following me or I probably. hope you're following me already. Probably. probably. So yeah, I hope so. Um, but yeah, man, check us out, dude. We got a show uh, October 9th in Portland. Yep, coming up. This is coming out this week, so it's coming yeah, out if this this, comes out. this weekend uh, in in Portland, and then you're going to LA, dude. LA, going to LA. Um, Damn, Killa Cali. You know, uh, so yeah, we're gonna go down Killa and Cali, and then we're back in Seattle October 29th. Stacked card. We got some dope names. We had a couple names that we haven't even introduced yet. Yeah. And we're really looking forward to that one. Then November 20th, we've got this little card. Um, this guy, uh, well, I forgot his name. Moxley. Oh, oh, John Moxley. Yeah. Yeah. November 20th, John Moxley will Against be in town. Filthy Tom. Called out Tom Lawler. That'll be yeah. good. And then we're back in Seattle, November, uh, I'm sorry, December 18th. So, yeah, got a lot of cool stuff coming up, man. It feels so good I'm to excited. be back, man. It feels good to be back. It really does. Ooh. And, man, great to have you back. Absolutely, man. All right, dude. Well, uh, any final words for the defiance? No, just, um, man, thank you for, uh, well, geez, I just said, no, then I'm going to say something. So yes, I do have something to say. I want to say thank you to everybody. Um, we really do appreciate everything. We appreciate all the support you've given us during the pandemic, after the pandemic, um, man, it felt so good to get back there in Washington hall and feel that energy and see all those faces and you know, I know a lot of people still haven't come out yet because we're still in the middle of the pandemic, but uh, we can't wait to get those people back. We can't wait to bring, you know, to introduce your friends to defy. It's just been great being back. And, you know, I can't wait till, till we're down in Portland and see some new faces. Um, But yeah, man, it's been awesome. It's been awesome coming back is one of those things where you never knew if it was going to happen or not. So, but yeah, it's, it's, it's great to be back. All right, Matt. Thanks a lot, man. Thank you, man. Take care.